And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them. So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. I want you to notice that. The elder left first, all the way through to the youngest. And when Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst, when Jesus lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. <clears throat> this past week, Sister Murphy and I were on a few days of R&R was privileged to actually visit the hill country of Texas, uh, north of San Antonio. It was beautiful. And uh, we went through just a little bit of a, not really mountains, but it was real rocky. And there was a sign, if you'll see it on the screen momentarily, there was a sign on the side of the road that we passed that just simply said, Fallen Rocks. I want to preach to you for a little while this morning about Fallen Rocks. Everybody say, thank God for the word. <clears throat> thank you for standing, and you may be seated. Nicholas Sparks in the rescue said, if you're going to uh, come across people, and you're going to come across people in your life who will say all the right words at all the right times. But in the end, it's always their action you should judge them by. It's actions, not words, that matter. This is going to be a real important message today, and I'm going to need everybody's attention. And uh, y'all can put away your cell phones and iPads, and uh, if I say something and you want to check me out, you can check me out this afternoon when you get home. <coughs> One man said, listen very carefully, judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from bad judgment. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came back to the temple. And the Bible said all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. <clears throat> the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been taken, caught in the act of adultery. They forced her to stand before the people. I want to really emphasize this is an issue. I'm preaching an, about an issue this morning that all of us fight with. Preachers fight with it. Uh, saints fight with it. It has caused people to lose out with God. And I want to address this very major issue today. <clears throat> so they brought this woman. They forced her to stand in front of the people. <clears throat> 
I cannot imagine how humiliating and embarrassed being caught in the act of what she was doing. I doubt if she even had her really time to adorn herself or fix herself up properly. And they forced her to stand before the people. Then they said to Jesus, this woman was caught having, and I'm going to be appropriate as I can this morning, but this woman was caught having an inappropriate relationship with a man who is not her husband. The law of Moses commands that we should stone to death every woman who does this. So what do you say we should do? They were asking this question, of course, to try to trick Jesus, to trap him so they could have something to charge him with. They were looking for an incident, some material that they could accuse him with to destroy his reputation and purpose. But instead of responding to them vocally, Jesus just simply bent over and started writing on the ground with his finger. And of course, the age-old question is, What did he write? No one knows. A lot of speculation. When they continued to ask Jesus their question, he finally raised up and said, Anyone here who has never sinned can throw the first stone at her. Then Jesus bent over again and wrote on the ground. I have a question I want to ask all of you today, especially those of you that feel like you might be a Bible scholar, where did they get their rocks? They were in the temple. Were there rocks laying on the floor in the temple? That could be another message for another time. Um, I can only surmise that because they found someone caught in the very act and they had sufficient witnesses to being required, they brought their rocks with them. I want you all to get your head around that for just a moment. They obviously went to church. And in the presence of God, they had a handful of rocks. Have we ever done that? So those who heard what Jesus said began to leave one by one. First, the older The elders, they started leaving, and then the rest began to trickle out. Finally, Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus raised up again and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one judged you guilty? And she said, No one, sir. And he said, I also don't judge you guilty. You may go now, but don't sin anymore. You and I often times will allude to this passage saying, 
Don't throw stones at people. You shouldn't throw stones at people. In other words, don't judge. How many times have we heard people quote Jesus saying, Let he that is without sin be the first to cast a stone. The subtle implication of many who quote this verse is that we should not judge other people because there really isn't a judgment at all. It's very true that this passage teaches that we should not judge. But this passage does not teach that there is not a judgment. I want you to notice with me this morning a very familiar screen, a scripture. Again, you won't see it on the screen. But Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This passage clearly tells us that judgment has already been passed, and Jesus came not to judge, but to give us an escape from judgment. In John 7, 24, Jesus tells them to stop judging by appearances and then make the appropriate judgment. So judgment against a sinful race has already been passed. Jesus has taken the punishment for that judgment upon himself. So the challenge of this passage is to recognize that all of us are guilty. For all have sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of the glory of God. So this does not mean that we permit people to do bad things. This doesn't mean that you've been granted a license to go and do whatever you want when you feel like doing it. That's not what this means at all. But rather, it means that our attitude in addressing those actions should be different. As one commentator put it, this does not mean flabby indifference to moral wrong, but it's the recognition of solidarity and guilt. So our attitude, listen to pastor, our attitude of addressing sin should be as stated in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brethren, Paul said, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one, and the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest you also be tempted. It is our job not to judge, but to restore. Our responsibility as Christian people is not to judge, but to help restore such a one that has been taken in a fall. Scripture makes it clear that we are not to judge one another. In Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. In James chapter 4, 11. In Romans 14, verse 4. And also verse 10. So with that in mind, let me suggest to you that the point of this message 
is not to say don't judge, but rather to give us a picture of how we can recognize the difference between false, hypocritical judges and judgments and those who are genuinely interested in confronting with the aim of restoring. So I have brought to with me today to church some rocks. These are real rocks, and I am going to make an effort to carry them in my hands to church in the presence of God. These are real rocks. They're not styrofoam. They're the real deal. So if I throw one at you, it's going to hurt really bad unless you can duck really quick. But I'm not going to throw them so you don't have to worry. First of all, false judges. False judges. People who judge others. False judges. The Bible teaches strongly against false prophets. I want to preach today against false judges. False judges are people who carry rocks around with them. They carry them everywhere they go. And I'm going to call them today, for the sake of this message, rock toters. Now I looked up the word tote, and it's a word, but toter is not one until today. So now it's a word. If you look at our scripture setting in verses 3 and 4, the teachers and the Pharisees drag this woman publicly before crowds of people in the temple, make her stand before them, and loudly proclaim her sin to the whole entire crowd. And somehow or another, to drag this woman, to force her, to push her, they apparently had to put their head, their rocks in their pocket or hand them off to someone and say, hold my rocks for me while I push this woman to a place of, of deliberate, scheming, cruel judgment. And as soon as I get her to that spot, I'll be back for my rocks. Can't forget your rocks. Rocks are a very important part of Christian attire. They become a part of our our wardrobe. They become a part of how we think. Let me say here in passing, this isn't in my notes, but for years I have kept a little small baggie, a sandwich bag, a clear sandwich bag of rocks in my office. This past week in preparation for this sermon, I thought I'm going to try to find me a small vase. Maybe Sister Murphy or somebody can find me a small vase. And I want to fill that nice vase up with rocks and put them on display in my office. Let me tell you the story behind my rocks. When we pastored in Youngstown, uh, we had gone to a social function on a Saturday night. And uh, the people in Youngstown, God loved them. They were, they were a different kind of people. They wore their feelings on their cuff, and they were offended so easily over every little thing. And so after we left, uh, a person literally playing devil's advocate brought up a subject uh, that was controversial to that area, and they had a knockdown drag out. <clears throat> when I got to church Sunday morning, one of them who were offended, and there was about 12 of them at that meeting that night, 
came to me and said, so-and-so offended me last night, right after you left. I could not believe what they said. And I said, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to go to my office, and I want you to walk around the church, and I want you to find every one of those people and bring them to my office. And they did. And all of those people came, thinking each individual thought that I was going to trumpet their cause to the utmost. How sadly mistaken they were. I told them all, you're a bunch of ninny babies. You're acting worse than a child. This is ridiculous. And since y'all hate each other so bad, I got out my bag of rocks and set them on the desk. And I said, look, why don't y'all just stone each other? Get your rocks. Go ahead. I got up from my desk and I passed it around. Get your handful. And on the count of three, y'all just start slinging them at each other. Well, in a couple of seconds, I heard somebody go, And then another one. <laughs> and it just went kind of around the room. And they all repented and apologized. And it was over. And I thought, that's a pretty cool idea right there. Had someone called me a number of years ago since we've been here. And uh, this is someone I knew very well. And uh, she said, I am fed up with my daddy. He don't treat us right. He don't do this right. He don't do that right. And I thought, dear God, he's given you everything you could ever want. I don't know what your problem is. I knew the daddy, knew him very well. I was born and raised with him. And uh, so on the way to her house to talk to her and her husband, who were just letting the dad have it, I brought a little paper cup with me, and I pulled over on the side of the road and picked up a cup of rocks. And uh, I said, the next time he comes, just greet him at the door by stoning him if he's that bad. Just kill him. Here's rocks, y'all just... And she said, don't say that to me, Pastor. You're making me cry. And I said, that's the point. Are you perfect? Have you been perfect? But it's amazing. And here's my point in those two illustrations. My point is we all have a tendency to carry rocks everywhere we go. How many times have you said, if I ever see that person again, I will. So just in case. So for those of you here today that like to tote rocks, I'd recommend you start keeping them in several different places. I'd recommend you keep some in the cup holders of your car. You never know. You might see this person in traffic. And if you practice, man, you can roll your window down real quick at a stoplight and just hit him one of them. Say, Brother Murphy, that's absurd. It is absurd. I'm illustrating the absurd with absurd. You see how we think? We don't do it literally. But it's in our heart and it's our mind. Let me tell you a little bit about false judges. People who carry rocks around with them are rock toters. Number one, they're the most insensitive people on the planet. If you look at verses 3 and 4, the teachers and Pharisees drag this woman publicly before crowds of people and make her stand before them and they loudly proclaim her sin to everybody. But watch this. This is where we become preference-based with the Bible. Now they refer to the penalty of death for adulterers in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 22 and ask Jesus if it should be carried out. So at first glance, it seems like this was a reasonable request. Should we carry out the law? This is what the law says. However, there's no record of this penalty being carried out for hundreds of years before this time. But rather than posing this problem to Jesus hypothetically, as other groups did, 
They publicly shamed this poor woman so their agendas can be carried forward. They didn't care about her, and they didn't care about the law. They had an agenda they wanted to carry forward. Had they truly been concerned with righteousness, they would have exhorted this woman to repent and offer a sacrifice to atone for her sin. So false judges, people who carry rocks, are very insensitive people. Number two, false judges, rock toters. They're insensitive, but they're also careless. In verse 5, the Pharisees said that the law commands us to stone such women. They obviously didn't read the law very well. And this is where the Word of God becomes kind of a preference based and we'll read into it what we want to read into it. Look with me at the relevant sections of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Leviticus 20 and verse 10 states that the punishment is actually for the man. Deuteronomy 22 and 22 states that the punishment is both for the man and the woman. Now without getting mired in the details of this of what was the case of adultery or whether it was premarital relationship or consensual, there's one glaring problem in this whole scenario. Where was the man? Where was the man? If they were caught in the act together, it is highly unlikely that he could have escaped. So where is he? Why isn't he there? Why is it? He being judged as well as she was. So they were careless people. They didn't care about justice. They only wanted to trap Jesus. False judges. People who tote rocks around with them. Always choose the weaker vessel. One of these days when the time's right. I want to teach our church on the spirit of Jezebel. One of the most glaring features and attributes of the Jezebel spirit is they find the weakest vessel they can. So perhaps these old, can't say everything I want to say, Phariseeistical people, these men, the Bible said they were elderly men, apparently they were too weak to wrestle the man up in front of everybody, so they took the woman. They found the weaker vessel, but they were not obeying the law of Moses. So we see this carelessness in all kinds of people who have things to hide. Rock toters are careless, and they leave clues very blatantly open to the public for their hidden agendas. Number three, not only are false judges or rock toters insensitive and careless, but they're also easily shamed when you turn the table. That's why they get very uncomfortable when truth really begins to come out. Notice that their persistent request for judgment, Jesus states, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her by telling them to throw the first stone. Watch this. He is merely repeating the injunction given to them by the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 13 and 17. They forgot that there was a key piece of information about the law of Moses that they needed to adhere to. Actually, the law of Moses says when you catch someone, as they caught this woman, the witnesses are the first to stone her. So by Jesus calling their bluff, if you will, 
Jesus, knowing their secret motivation, turns the challenge around on them. He essentially says, this is your responsibility because you're the witness as you saw it. You do it. You caught her. You stoned her. Then their conscience finally did rest. When Jesus turned the spotlight around on them, their agenda was exposed. And in shame, they melted away. So rock toters, judges, people who judge others. are insensitive, careless, and easily shamed. So after they leave, Jesus indicates to the woman that he does not condemn her either and bids her go and sin no more. So this is not a license to sin. This is a grace of God being engaged, but don't go do it again. Forgive you this time, just don't go repeat it. So he's not given her permission to do bad things. He frees her. To go on in the joy and freedom of her forgiveness. He restores her to good graces. An example of this restoration is found in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And it begins with the prophet Nathan confronting David with this same very sin. Nathan doesn't drag David before some tribunal. He doesn't drag him out to the temple in front of the whole crowd. Nathan simply confronts David one-on-one directly. And when David confesses and repents, Nathan pronounces the Lord's forgiveness. And the purpose of all confrontation and discipline is not punishment, but restoration. It's a restoration back to good grace. It's a restoration back to a healthy relationship with God. And Nathan, a tremendous prophet, is a living example of Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. If you want to know how to restore such a one, consider Nathan's restoration of David. So I want to ask everybody in the building, when, you, when you've just heard this story and all of you know it, who do you identify with this? And who, who, who do you identify with in this story? Do you identify with the woman? Do we all feel like we've been judged sometimes? We've been judged inappropriately? We've been judged unfairly. People don't understand what's been going on in our life and they ought to cut us all some slack and give us all some latitude. I'm sure we all have felt like that. Not committing the deed, but you feel like you're in front of everybody and your all of your public sin is exposed and or your private sin is made public and, and people laugh and mock and judge and say that morons should have known better. Or... Can we be truly honest and say that there have been times when we stood on the other side of this situation and we showed up with someone caught in an act, someone accused of some transgression, someone doing something that is unforgivable. And so we show up at church, we show up in the altar, and we have rocks in our hands. And we're just waiting for the opportunity to state our peace. And we're going to get this straight. And we're going to get it worked out once and for all. And we we have our rocks with us. And if so-and-so don't show up, you can be rest assured we're coming back Wednesday night with our rocks. And we're going to show up next Sunday with our rocks. And and sooner or later, I'm going to have my peace and I'm going to have my say. And one of these days, I'm going to feel vindicated. And it's not until I have an opportunity to just rear back as hard as I can and just wing one of this person can we all be honest 
Sometimes we felt like the woman. Sometimes we feel like the false judge, the rock toter. The answer to that question is yes, of course. Jesus' whole point is that all of us, respectable or not, caught in the act or not, hidden behind self-superiority or not, all of us are in need of the grace of God. All of us are in need of the grace of God. All of us are in need of the grace of God. Every last one of us are in need of Him. So how many of us cannot see the Pharisee in our own heart? How many times have we said, Oh, I would never treat my child like that. Throwing a stone. Throwing something backhanded. I would never... I would never say that to my spouse after just hearing something cruel to someone else's. Or to say, and this would be more common, can you believe what she's wearing today? Look how ungodly. Look how immodest. Look how this. Look how that. And we pass judgment. I hear this one. Sometimes, boy, brother so-and-so, he sure is full of himself, ain't he? We make a judgment. We don't realize how we judge. We always judge. You say, well, that's my opinion. No, it's not. It's your judgment. You have something predetermined in your mind about somebody, and you're going to cast judgment. How many times have we, and I'm as guilty as anyone else, God spoke to me when I saw that road sign. Actually, the sign I saw doesn't say fallen rocks. It's Falling rocks, it's fallen. It's rocks, it's already fell. That's okay. Still gets the point across. How many times have we privately or publicly tore down someone else to elevate ourselves? We may not personally, I'm doing these things on purpose, but we've been trying to elevate ourselves when we think such thoughts, and that is certainly not what is happening subconsciously, and that's, that is the ultimate Ultimately, the sin of the false judge. Similarly, how many of us have had the fear of being exposed in our deepest, most shameful sin? Bill Eckenweiler said that the most devastating thing in the world for most people, particularly those of us who are in ministry, would be to receive an anonymous letter that says, you're a phony and I know it. A threat to expose that person. I disciplined someone here recently here at Grace and they said, I have a good mind to expose you publicly. I said, be careful. Because however, whatever standard you set when you judge other people is how they can judge you in return. So be careful before you go forward with something along that line. This is why so many sins are so hard to conquer because of the shame that comes with being revealed. But Jesus said, Jesus said, I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to condemn you. Just go and sin no more. What is the point in preaching about false judges? It's to show how we can recognize the sin in ourselves and then confess it and repent of it. And appropriate the grace that is afforded us in Jesus Christ. Do you remember Nathaniel Hawthorne's literary masterpiece, The Scarlet Letter? All of you, I'm sure, 
knows the story. It takes place in New England. The main character is Mrs. Hester Preen, who was caught in adultery and had a child out of wedlock. Her punishment is that she must wear a scarlet A on the exterior of her clothing so that her shame will be visible to all. Who gets thrill out of that, I want to know? Who gets some kind of demented inspiration out of that? All I want to see people healed, man. I want to see people restored. I don't want you to have to flaunt your sin for the rest of your life. Put it under the blood and leave it under the blood. And if you know somebody that's been caught in some act of transgression, if God forgave them, then it behooves us to follow suit and forgive them as well and never mention it again. She had to wear a visible, public, uh, scarlet A on the exterior of her clothing. However, the man involved in this was never revealed. Near the end of the book, her lover reveals himself to the community. He was Reverend Arthur Dimsdale. The whole time she had been wearing the exterior A, he had been wearing a secret A branded on his chest as well. She had been forced to bear her shame publicly, but he had to bear his secretly. We all carry our letters. We all have letters. All of us wear letters, either publicly or privately, but only Christ can forgive us. And when he does, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It would behoove all of us to think about that the next time we're tempted to carry our rocks to church and say, I remember what they did. I remember what she said about me. I remember what he did to me. I remember what they did to my family. Remember that because somewhere inside of your heart, there's a big scarlet letter that says you have been guilty of some sin in your past as well and where Jesus won't condemn them neither will he condemn you and so you should not condemn either we all carry our letters publicly or privately and only Christ can forgive us when I passed that sign we passed one and it hit me Pastor never gets to go away for R and R. There's always that engagement, always. When I passed that sign the first time, it was fallen F A L L E N, and it hit me. But I missed the sign, so I waited and I watched. We went several miles down the road, and there was another one. I slammed on the brakes. The people following us, or we were following, thought something had happened, and they pulled over way up the road. And I slammed on the brakes. Oh, Bishop Murphy, take a picture for me. As I began to process that thought in my head, I was reminded that when Jesus was beginning to ride into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, it occurred to me that because of Jesus' statement, when the Pharisees asked Jesus to tell these people to be quiet and don't make all this ruckus and praise you and all that like they're doing, what did Jesus say? 
If these hold their peace, the found it interesting. Did those people show up at the triumphal entry with rocks? Did they bring rocks to the triumphal entry? Really? The beginning of the whole purpose of Jesus coming? The biggest celebration the world has ever known? And you're not going to forget your rocks. Oh, honey, forgot my rocks. They're on the coffee table. Would you grab them before we walk out the door? Son, my, my rocks are on, the, on the, my nightstand by my bed. Would you go get them? We're going to triumphal entry, and people are going to be raising their hands and clapping and carrying on. And There's two or three people in that crowd that I know that really shouldn't be doing that. You know, there, there's going to be that one hypocrite that's going to take his coat off and throw it out in the middle of the street, and Jesus is going to ride over it. And if I get a chance, I want to wing him upside the head with one of my rocks. So go look on my nightstand and bring my rocks. Let me show you people what rocks do. When you carry rocks, let me show you what it does. Brother Marilyn, if you Brother Merrill is an excellent Bible study teacher. Loves home Bible study. Does a great job. Thank you. Yes, he does. But I want to illustrate to you what happens to your ministry and your development when you're a rock thrower. So if you'll hold these in your hands. And now, you know, Merrill loves his Bible study class. And... Uh, does a great job and can't wait from week to week till his Bible study night and he gets his chart and his Bible. And away he goes to Bible study. But deep down inside here somewhere, there's a person on the other side of the church that he wouldn't teach them a Bible study if they was going to hell next week. Can't stand them people. And if I ever get a chance, I'm going to keep my rocks handy. So I'm going to go to this other Bible study as Brother Merrill. I've got everything together, Brother Merrill. I've got everything's cool, Brother Merrill. So I'd like for you to teach them, if you'll turn in this Bible to Acts chapter 2, and just teach them about the, the, the Holy Ghost. It's kind of hard to, wait, wait, wait just a minute. You, you, you left some rocks. There's, there's, there's more people involved in this than, than really what, what they're, see another couple of rocks now. Now, if you'll just turn and teach the Bible now. You know why we can't grow? You know why we can't dream? You know why God is so hindered and hampered in our life? I'm talking to everybody in the building this morning. More me than anyone else. We can't really do what God wants us to do because we have a handful of rocks. So you can't turn in the Bible. You can't open it. You can't, you can't impart the Word of God because you've got a handful of rocks. We have these agendas. We have these grudges and these bitternesses. And so it's hard to do what God has called you to do when you've got a hand full of rocks. So if you really want to teach this the way it should be taught, you have to get rid of the rocks. Y'all follow me? Patrick, come here, sir. <clears throat> Patrick loves to praise and worship. He loves to clap his hands. I've noticed that. He'll clap. He claps as long, as fast, and as hard as he can. 
loves God. Walks with God, and this man has been up against everything you can imagine. But when you've got a handful of rocks and you want to clap and worship the Lord, that makes that real difficult, doesn't it? God spoke to me when I saw that sign. And he said, there's a lot of us that can never really worship like we want to worship. Now, we say we don't. But our actions speak louder than our words. We say we don't. But everything's cool. Everything's cool. With me and God, with people, everybody. Everything is fine, Pastor. Well, why can't you worship like you want to worship? What's, what's holding you back? What, what is preventing you from doing that? Thank you. Brother Steve Elsenrath is another worshiper here at church. I love to watch him worship. And it's not to attract attention, I promise you. It's not, it's none of that. He's a very meek man. He's been through some stuff. He's had his share of challenges in life with people like all of us have. One of the greatest pictures that's ever been taken in this church by anybody was somebody sitting behind Brother Steve one Sunday. Brother Steve stepped out in the aisle and had his hands way up. And his little boy, how old is Jackson? Two years old was standing right here beside him with his hands up like that. One of the most incredible pictures I've ever seen in my life. He's not just a worshiper, but he's teaching his kids. I've seen his two girls many times. They'll look up at him. I have literally seen them look up at him. And whatever he's doing, that's what they start doing. So if he's jumping there, I'm not trying to put him on the spot. But if they're jumping, he, if he's jumping, they jump. And if he raises his hand, they raise hand. If he claps, he claps. So when the Bible, Brother Steve, ask you to lift up holy hands. You really can't do it. You can lift up hands, but they're not holy hands. And it's really hard. It's really hard. There are weights. The Bible said to lay aside every weight and sin. But it's really hard to lift up holy hands because this is the surrender position because if you're not careful, if you really lift your hands and surrender to God, you'll drop your rocks. And you can't afford to drop your rocks. Not even to worship God. You can't afford to worship. You can't afford to drop your rocks. So even if your kids are watching you, as a matter of fact, thank you, sir, rocks kind of become an heirloom. We'll pass them down to our kids. Boy, that preacher over there, he did me wrong. And I'll never go to that church again. Furthermore, my kids will never go to that church again. So, it's real easy. Where's Gavin? Is he back there somewhere? Don't get him up. If he's, if he's sleeping, let, let him. No, I'm kidding. He's not. So, uh, Gavin, your daddy has all these rocks in, in his hands. And so, he wants to make sure before he dies that, that you get one of these rocks. So, just on behalf of your dad, I hope you all understand what I'm trying to preach here this morning. Right now, here's your rock. You treasure that. Because it will always represents bitterness and hatred and judgmentalism. 
and horrible things that we confront other people. So you treasure that life. You don't want ever to let go of that life. Anybody get the point here? You say, Brother Murphy, we never do that. We don't. Do we teach our kids to think or do we teach them what to think? So, the triumphal entry. When Jesus said, if these hold their peace, the rocks will cry out. Something just came to me when this happened, Brother Jared. That there were people that showed up that said, you know what? In the presence of God, with him on the way to his cross, I'm going to drop my rock. I don't need my rocks anymore. And so they keep walking and the procession keeps moving and the Pharisees just come and just almost assault Jesus. Verbally they do it. They tell these people to be quiet with all this worship and loud music and all these songs and just tell them to be quiet. And Jesus said, if they don't worship the fallen rocks, the fallen rocks, the rocks that symbolize forgiveness, the rocks that symbolize repentance, the rocks that symbolize restoration, the rocks that symbolize healing, they used to be in the clutches and the possession of families. And these are rocks that's been in the families for years. They dropped them on their pavement. Dropped them on their pavement. And they threw their garments on top. And if these people aren't quiet, these rocks will start testifying to you. They'll start praising. They'll start worshiping. Because they symbolize what I'm about. Bible said it was still dark. The Bible said it was still dark on the first day of the week. And I want you to hear me today. I'm almost finished. Musicians, y'all can go. It was very dark that morning. And there was a handful of women was headed to the cemetery they didn't have rocks in their hands they had spices oil in their hands you want to hear the absolute ultimate in duty and commitment that handful of women did not realize yet that this was the first Easter Sunday they didn't know they were supposed to celebrate Easter they were going brother Mike to anoint a corpse, a dead body. They were sad. They were crying. They were grieving. They were going to anoint a corpse. You have to understand that. Jesus told them over and over that I'm going to raise again from the dead from the third day, but none of them acted like they even heard that. And on the way, those women begin to discuss, who can we get 
to move from the altar. It's been a talk. Too big to hold in your hand. Where this rock represents my sin. There was a big, huge rock in front of that grave that took multi-number of men to move it, and it seemed to represent the sin of the entire world. Who is going to move that rock? We all know the story. When they got there, the stone had been rolled away. The rock had been dropped forever. And Jesus, once and for all, made it possible for every man, woman, boy, and girl to experience the grace of God. The angel said, You've come to an anoint for corpse, but he's not here. You come in and see where he lay. He's not here. You're in the wrong place. The rock was dropped, not because Jesus had to move it. Not because Jesus needed to be liberated. Jesus never carried rocks. He never carried rocks. That stone was moved so they could go in and witness for themselves the awesome beauty of fallen rocks. There's people here today that want to drop your rocks. There's people here today that need to drop your rocks. But there's people here that want to and you're the same way. Brother Murphy, I've lived with these in my hands for years. You understand that you don't know how badly I was judged and how badly I was bruised and how humiliated I was and how embarrassed I was. But you know the interesting thing about the woman in adultery is when she was forgiven, she didn't pick up those rocks and start throwing them at the back of her accuser. She just went away and quit sinning. Incredible byproduct of forgiveness. When you've been forgiven, you don't have a desire not to forgive those who offended you either. In his book, Mirror Christianity, C.S. Lewis states, if anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity or sexual sin as a supreme vice, he's quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they're the least of bad all the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting on, of putting other people in the wrong. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong. Of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting. The pleasures of power and hatred. He said there's two things inside of you. The criminal self and diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. And that is why a cold, self-righteous prude who goes regularly to church may be nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, he said, it's better to be near to hell. If you'll stand with me this morning, listen very carefully. Adultery is terribly destructive in how it destroys marriages, wrecks relationships, injures people far and wide. What a terrible, hurtful, fragmenting, shattering sin that it is. And in the eyes of strict justice, it is deserving of death. And Jesus upholds that fact, much to the surprise of the scribes and Pharisees. But that's not all that Jesus does. Neither is that all that he says. 
He sees the hearts of these men. And he says, in effect, you're no better off than she is because your hearts are filled with murder and hatred. Malice gleamed in their eyes as they sought to exploit this woman's unfortunate situation in order to get at Jesus. But he read their heart. And what he saw was worse even than her sin. Someone said one time, if the inner thoughts of a man were written on his forehead, he would never take his hat off. I believe there's some people here today that wants to drop your hat. Because you can't praise with rocks in your hand. You can't clap with rocks in your hand. You can't get what you need out of the word of God with rocks in your hand. The only appropriate posture you can take with rocks in your hands is kneeling. You can kneel down with rocks in your hands. But it's going to be hard to get back up right with them standing. There's people here today, I would to God you would hear me. There's two or three I could walk back and take you by the hand. and I've tried and you won't extend me your hand. And coach you through your bitterness and your malice. You hate people for committing adultery. So you are as guilty as they are. That's folly. You could start dreaming about life again. You could start dreaming about your future again. If you'll drop your hand. Life would have a whole new meaning if you'd let that grudge go. If you'd let that heartache go. You'd let that judgmental mindset that you have, if you'll let it go. Our objective here at Grace is to restore and to give people hope and to help them heal. Not to judge and slander them. So, is there anybody here today that, can you let it go? Can you drop your rocks? So that the next time I see them, I don't want to hurl it. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to, I'm not even going to carry it with me anymore. I'm just going to take these feelings I have bottled up on the inside and I'm just I'm just going to leave them right here and you know if if Jesus can get any glory and praise out of that then then go ahead because he almost did one day as they begin to sing softly and you begin to gather up to the front of the building I'd like for everyone in the building to come but there's some that here today I want you to come and I'm going to ask you to drop your rocks. Jesus wants you to drop your rocks. Would you come up here and just, just leave your rocks? If one of you fellows could pick those up so a child don't get them. Can you drop your rocks? Our young people have led the way here today. They're kneeling. There's some of them that some very bad things have happened to them. That we follow their example and really pour our heart out to God and really pursue the healing power of God. That God could give us hope. That God could let us start dreaming again. There's folks here today that's got a great future ahead of you if you can get rid of the rocks. If you'll drop your rocks, if you'll drop the rocks, God can bring things to life in you you never dreamed possible. God.
Forgive me for carrying rocks. Help me not to judge again. Help me, God, to get rid of that attitude and that spirit towards people. God, deliver me of my hatred and malice. God, deliver me of my bitterness. Help me to be pure, oh God. Help me to be pure, oh God. Come on, folks, if somebody will take it.